Orthodox Arts Festival podcast, Christian podcast to inspire, educate, and entertain an emerging global Christian community. Welcome to Inspirational Entertainment. Hello everyone, this is Orthodox Arts Festival. I would like to introduce you to one of the artists who will be presenting their work at this year's Orthodox Arts Festival. My name is Ioannis Antoniadis, and my guest today is Jonathan McCormack, artist and writer who currently lives and works in New York and United States. Hello, Jonathan, and welcome to the Orthodox Arts Festival. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you that you agreed to our invitation to participate in the festival and our interview request. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So let us get started. I found your drawings to be both delicate and powerful on the verge of apocalyptic, which I find to be very intriguing. They reminded me of the works of Dutch painters, especially Hieronymus Bosch, or even visionary self-taught or outsider artists. Is it safe to assume that these works had an impact on you or was it just a coincidence? No, no, they did have a big impact on me. I, I love Bosch, I think he's magnificent. And uh, the thing is, Bosch is very old, so he's not very shocking. You know, we look at him and we think he's a couple hundred years old, so that removes him from our time. But if you look at his paintings, they really are magnificently disturbing, uh, his visions of paradise and hell. And I think, really, we're kind of living in the era of Bosch, you know, uh, even, even with outsider art. The truth is that our lives are horribly deformed. I believe society is deformed and their art reflects that. It's very hard to draw naturalistically or even with real grace because it seems unbelievable. People have a terrible time believing in goodness. They really do. They have a terrible time believing that beauty is even possible. Um, it's almost too much to ask. I think that's because beauty calls a response to us, a responsibility. I believe beauty calls us to a moral responsibility and it's intrinsically involved in ethics. Uh, the thing that modern people don't understand about Bosch and outside artists is they're presenting their artworks as ugly. Now, a lot of modern art is ugly, but they look at it and say, look at this. To me, this is beautiful. Uh, but but Bosch was horrified by much of humanity. He saw sin as truly, truly evil and ugly. Uh, that's not all we want to look at, of course, especially as Orthodox. We are always moving towards an end in Christ in the resurrection. But nevertheless, he was able to see these things as ugly. And today we're not allowed to put things in a hierarchy. Today we're not allowed to say some things are more beautiful and more ugly. So he got to present ugly art as ugly. He showed it evil as evil. Uh, he was making a moral statement. That's not the purpose of the art. You know, we shouldn't reduce it. But he certainly was making that statement. And today, it's almost impossible to do. You, you can't make a, a moral statement, you know? If you present something ugly, you can't make a value judgment upon it anymore. And with my artwork, I, I try to do that. I try to show 
the ugliness. And I'm not the only one who thinks the era we're living in is a bit apocalyptic. It's a bit inverted. You know, I mean, a lot of hellish imagery is no longer in a Bosch painting. It's outside of our window. It's on our TV. It's uh, often that chaos is inside of us. Uh, you know, I believe we're living with this in a real way. Um, it's different because when, when Bosch was painting, they were dealing with things like disease and the plague. Well, these are all external. But to us, these are internal realities, you know, we have a different subjectivity. And so I, I do believe that uh, it's proper to express these things too. Um, the problem with art today, with AI and things like that, and computer technology is you can make art look very pretty. And today people will not see that as authentic. But outsider art, art that's not properly um harmonized they do see that as more authentic simply because it's more human you know people have a hard time accepting perfection in art or even believing in harmony it automatically looks superficial in today's world you know it's just too incongruous with the way we live so i do try to uh look at uh, outsider art and uh people who are just untrained they immediately go for and I, I try to make my art actually look like that so yeah i mean uh, I, what i see because i'm very familiar with the zen revisionary and uh, once i actually hosted uh, the first international festival of visionary arts in uh, uh, london okay. so uh, the the thing that i know that um you gave another perspective to it that was was inside this distorted imagery the theology of the church that was the Christian message. So was not uh, the hopelessness that overwhelmed uh, everything, the madness, the, 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 you know, yes, was there noticed, but was not the only thing. And uh, that is also, you know, uh, that is also there. Yeah, I mean, if you present art as abnormal, that means there is something called normal. If you present an art that's disfigured, as disfigured, that means there is a proper figuration, you know? We don't believe in that. There can't be abnormal art because there's no such thing as normal in today's postmodern world. And, and so I, I do present things as a bit cracked, a bit bent and disfigured, but I present them as disfigured. That's not the way it's supposed to be. There is an actual perfected vision that we're moving towards, and this is wrong. This is, you know, if I look at some of like sin, when someone acts sin, they're doing something wrong. There's actually a right way to live. There's a right way to be. It's within the logic of Christ. And uh, it, but you only could see something as sin if you have the example of a perfect human being as Christ, if you know the right thing, then you can identify sin. You can see it as sin. And the problem is a lot of people don't see disfigured things or sin as sinful. They try to see it as beautiful. They try to see it as normal, but we all know it's not normal. It's abnormal. It's ugly. And a lot of society is like that. And they can plaster it over with superficial uh 
pleasantries, but but it, it's simply not true. It's all propaganda, you we'll know. Make up. <laughs> sin should be ugly, and it should be shown as ugly, not as beautiful, you know, not as Hollywood, not as TV would have it, you know. I, I mean, people who are deep in sin—that's a tragic situation. It ought not to be celebrated, and many times it is celebrated today, you know. Oh uh, yes. So you also submitted a short story. Um, I personally find it to be imaginative, challenging, and uncompromising, digging into problems and personalities on the outskirts of human experience, despite the fact that indeed Fringe appears to be gaining popularity nowadays. Uh, is this something you naturally do, or is it the outcome of extensive theological inquiry, or maybe a byproduct of a cultural background? Tell us a bit about your writing process. Yeah, well, it's really both. I mean, I try to write reflecting my life and what I see, and I'm influenced by Dostoevsky, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said, you know, uh, sometimes the reason she presents ugly things is because sometimes you have to shout in today's world. She said, today's world, even if you're a Christian, nihilism is in the air we breathe you will not get away from it you cannot hide from it it affects us all um but i did write a story uh and it's about uh, the ruined what we say to the ruined and it's about how the church deals with outcasts and here in america the church is largely a middle class phenomenon it does not serve the outcasts very well uh, that's very odd because traditionally this was church was the place for the people who had no other place to go. You know, uh, I recall there was a saint, I forget his name, uh, in the fourth century and, uh, the, the king demanded the church hand over all its treasures and its gold. So the priest stripped his church of any gold, any valuables and gave it to him. But uh, the king was not satisfied and said, no, no, you will come next week in my courtyard and bring the treasures of the church. So a week late, week goes by, the king goes out to his balcony, he looks down, and he sees the priest surrounded by dozens of people. These people are poor, they're destitute, some are crippled, some are uh, mentally challenged. Uh, these are hurting people. The king says, what are you doing? The priest looks around and says, you asked me to bring the treasures of the church. These are the treasures of the church, the hurting, the broken, you know, and uh, the hurting, the broken, they have a hard time finding what they need in the church. They really do. A lot of times the church is too theological. It's too intellectual. Um, which is a shame because our God was broken on a cross, you know, our God absolutely could speak to brokenness. You can find and actually have communion with our God in your brokenness, you know, no matter how broken we are. Uh, and, and, but the culture tends to be very middle-class, um, you know, after liturgy and coffee hour. The truth is, if you're going to church every week, you probably are, fairly competent, you have a decent job, um, you know, you have some stability in your life. 
but I tell you, the people I bring to church, I bring the homeless to church, drug addicts, oftentimes they're high or drunk when I bring them. And, and these are people that disrupt the service. They will fall asleep during the service. Maybe they'll shout something. They act very inappropriately. And, um, and these people are disruptive. These are the ruined people. So what is the message the church has for the ruined? Not for middle-class people like me who read a lot or intellectual and have a dearth of meaninglessness and need to be filled with Christ. What about people that are so broken they can't even articulate those more intellectual needs? Um, I had today actually that person uh, on an interview in the morning. Uh, really? It was the Bishop, Bishop Agathonikos of Arusa in Tasmania from the mission, the Orthodox mission in Tasmania. Uh, the most ascetic, the most... Uh, uh, it was just a delight to to actually be in the presence without any intellectuality because his English they were poor. But I doubt if he will use any. He was a monk priest, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean they just do everything. <laughs> if you see photographs where they do the the mission in uh, in straw hats and up open in the on in, in the open. Uh, you know, just baptizing in the rivers and the seas in canoes. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, the, you know, he begs for a little piece of money, for, for little pennies here and there to, to you know, to, for a little hospital, for some well, for some this and that and the other travels. And uh, he there, believe it or not, only Greece supports the entire mission in Africa. Can you believe that? That's incredible! Wow. It is incredible. This is what I, what I was, I was cosmic. Uh, you know, just hmm. hearing that there's no, no really, you know, proper funding from uh, richer uh, nations. But you know, people do whatever they can with the kind of um, power they have, and maybe it was for the best because we have plenty. So what we do with it? <laughs> what kind of community we build, you know, in our on our towns and villages? Oh, yeah. I mean, also the fact that he was begging, um, you know, people see that and they know that. And that, you know, you, you can talk to a man who has begged in his life, you know, no matter how broken down, you can relate to that. I mean, this is a man who's begged. I mean, that's gorgeous. He's begging. You know, and and I'm sure the people around him appreciate that. Uh, monks are actually fantastic. Uh, I visit a monastery in Arizona, um, St. Anthony's, and Elder Ephraim now is dead, but he used to go out to the homeless almost every day and uh, feed them and bring them food, and he had no problem because he he Saint Sophroni once said someone asked Saint Sophroni. How do you get so humble? How do you practice humility? And he said, anyone who comes to my door, I put myself under their feet. He puts that's, them under them. That's amazing. That's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, and but that's how monks are. You know, the monks are great with the poor, the mentally ill. And at St. Anthony's, there's quite a few people there who are very broken. And the monks are wonderful with them, you know? Uh, they have no problems at all relating to them and speaking to them. 
there, there's no ego, you know. Um, and and that's the thing, though. We we do as Christians have to say, what do we say to the ruined? Um, I, I think of Christ uh, in the Gospels. You know, most people who went to Christ were not asking for meaning in life. They're not. They weren't even asking for grace. Most of the time, their hearts were sick. And they're asking for very concrete things. Lord, my child is dying. My brother, uh, I'm blind. I'm paralyzed. They're asking for very concrete things, you know. I mean, they lived in an impoverished world. And that's what they're asking for. Oftentimes, when the poor and the broken come, they just want someone to listen to them. They, they, they just need warmth. They need community. Um, you know, they don't need these huge theological arguments. They don't need these intellectual things. They really don't. And that's not what the church is about. Christ came and he didn't give us a doctrine or a theology, though we have that. He came and he gave us his body, the church. And that's where we gather and are warmed and are infused with his love. And, and you know, I do talk to the homeless about one thing all the homeless tell me, especially the women, they always say, I've never been loved. I've never known love, ever. These people in their 40s or 50s. This is a terrible impoverishment. Uh, even Mother Teresa said the worst form of poverty is loneliness. These people are so lonely. Uh, and, and, and we believe it's by Christ's love that we really become true persons in his image. And these people have no love at all. You know, what do you say to them? You, you can't say your life's going to improve. One day you might get a job. One day that might happen. But many of these people are very mentally ill. Many of these people are drug addicts and alcoholics. They could turn around their life, but many of them never will. What do you say to them? What can the church offer them? And I'm hoping that the church can offer them just a presence, a presence, not even speech not even teaching, just the presence, the presence of Christ through us. You know, these people do come to church and we go out to them. And, and as Christians, you know, they want to talk to us and we do have to think about what we say and how we say it. You know, we can't give cheap grace. We can't tell them their lives will improve. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe their lives will get much worse. Uh, as we say, Christ didn't come to banish suffering. He came to use suffering, to meet us in suffering. That's a frightening message. That's a message most do not want to hear. and Many do not even understand. Uh, so to convey that, is difficult. That's why I wrote the story. And I think literature helps us imagine those situations and can shape the way we engage with people uh, in the way we communicate and commune with them. And the, the puzzling thing is why you chose this alien culture to the Americans, because truly <laughs> the culture you chose, you know, the type of people you chose more or less, they are, you know, I don't think Americans, they got used to the whole, you know, the Slavic element is it's still a big puzzle to most Americans. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. 
Um, but, but we do have a lot of um, Russians in the Orthodox Church. My little church is most Slav, Ecuadorian, Dominican, Puerto Rican. We have Romanians, Ukrainians. But we do have a lot of Russians. And I was trying to put an element of foreignness because most people, when they think of Orthodoxy, it's very uh, foreign. It's very mystical. It's very esoteric. You know, it's a different type of church. You know, uh, if, if it's a Western church and a Catholic priest, they think of things differently. What would a Catholic church do, a Catholic priest? Well, they're very much, and it's good, but they're very much about social things, about feeding the poor uh, literally with food. Um, Alexander Schmemann used to write about how the Catholic church very much lost a horizontal uh, element. It was no longer pointing to heaven when it got almost fully invested in social issues. Uh, you know, you, you could feed the poor without being a Christian. You don't need Christ to go and give someone $20 to give them a ride. You don't need Christ at all. And when you do those things, you don't need to be an icon of, of any particular type of love. I know many atheists do things like that. And um, it's already happening by the entire system <laughs> right oh, yeah. now. Is uh, I mean, you know, the, the we have uh, what is called universal credit that is applying more universally as the time goes by. <laughs> you know, this type of uh, sort of pseudo charity is uh, is uh, a kind of controlling mm. kind of uh, reality that uh, people not yet taking very seriously, um, but it is there. It is there, yeah. I mean, charity without, you know, the also the the asceticism without this, you know, th this element that uh, eventually the one thing we should we should be looking and desiring more than anything should be actually Christ, and uh, without this, everything else will be shallow, empty. They will never do a big difference. I mean, there are poor people, I mean, from what I see uh, in Africa, and uh, there are people that have absolutely nothing, but they are so more happier than us. I know. You know, I mean, we are a sad story of plenty. <laughs> well, it's true. I, You know, I think about Mother Teresa, and she said that the, the people, the Indians uh, in India that she served were, someone said, you know, those people you serve are very poor. And she stopped and said, well, that's not true. Many people, they have, they're very rich in their treasures and their spirituality. Um, the average person in India is surrounded by loved ones. As poor as they are, they have sisters and brothers and aunts, and they're constantly supported, you know. And uh, even speaking of charity, you know, Mother Teresa starred her charity. Eventually got very big. Towards the end, it was turning into a business and she would be sitting in a big corporate boardroom and she dissolved that. And the reason she dissolved that was because it wasn't face to face. You know, it didn't have just like you're talking about, it didn't have Christ in it. A lot of people were getting food. A lot of people were getting money. But that's not really the point. They weren't being spiritually fed. And so Mother Teresa dissolved that, the business aspects, even though it was less efficient, but it's not about efficiency. And she went back out with her nuns and, and fed the homeless face to face. 
The interesting thing is when all her nuns came to America and went to the Bronx from Calcutta, they said they were shocked by the poverty in the Bronx. They never saw such depths of poverty. This is very odd because in Calcutta, people were starving to death on the streets. It's because you know, there's no contrast. There is no enough contrast. I imagine that probably, you know, we know as painters, everything will change according to the contrast you put on a painting. I think seeing the tremendous wealth of the city that uh, was probably the three quarters so wealthy, and then they saw these depths of of uh, poverty in that, that must have had a massive effect in the way they were seeing things. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. But but you're right. It's one thing to see impoverishment everywhere. It's another thing to see this impoverishment and right next door, plenty of food and plenty of wealth. That makes it so stark and that brings it out. You're absolutely right. Another thing they talked about was how ugly the poor were in the Bronx. So lives are very ugly. They lived in little apartments. They never were visited by anyone. Uh, the apartments themselves are very ugly. Uh, there's no beauty. There's no ritual. There's no there's no community. Uh, and, and the lives of the poor in the Bronx were poorer emotionally and spiritually than the people in India. Uh, they I mean, weren't. They, they were also, there was a racism still. Yeah, you know, right. The, that was another element that those people, they felt like they were, they, they do not belong there. You know, the, the country didn't really like them. They oh, just it's... tried to, it was an underworld. They, they, they felt themselves that they belonged to an underworld. <laughs> well, was... we treated them that way too. We made nice apartment buildings and shoved them away from the beautiful people and put them all over here. This is where the poor people go. This is where the, the impoverished go, far away from the beautiful people in Manhattan. We'll put these people in the Bronx, you know? I mean, that, that's no, and that creates two separate cultures too. And also tons of resentment and anger, of course, you know, who wouldn't be? It's true. I mean, next week I'm going to have a, a, a very good uh, director that he was born in Bronx. He will be able to tell me more about the life as a child there. And then he moved to Greece. So <laughs> in, du during the, the interviews uh, that I will put in the website, in the, in the festival, you'll be able to hear more about his uh, point of view <laughs> about yeah. Bronx. It would be quite interesting. Um, so, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, Karen, you wanted to ask, do you want to say something? Oh, uh, no, no, it'd be interesting. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Um, instead of providing biographical information, you send us a cryptic message. Artist, writer, broken-hearted for God. Do you want to elaborate or are you going to leave it cryptic? <laughs> because yeah. we have very little information <laughs> to provide our, uh, biographically speaking. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, but that, that's that's the essence of, of, of what I am, you know. I think when we die, God gives us supposedly a little stone with our true nature and our true name um, and what you are. Um, and I, th I think that's basically what I am. I am an artist. I do commissions. I've been published a few places. I do write. 
Um, you know, I've, I've led a crazy life. I've been in prison. I've been an alcoholic and an addict. This is 20 years ago, but that happened. This is all before I found God in Christ. I've, I've lived a life. I've lived in the depths of hell. And I ended up in a, the most beautiful place on the planet, the Orthodox Church, you know, and it was a hard journey. Um, but it made me through I, who I am. And also I can relate to everyone. I could talk to the homeless guy. I've been there. I talked to the alcoholic and drug addict. Well, I've been there too. Uh, when I'm at the food kitchen giving food, you know, when I was homeless, I went to the food kitchen. I was on the other side, you know? And so one thing I do love about Christianity is that when we worship, we do so as equals, all one, you know, no one's higher than anyone else, you know, no one ought to be. And you have the poor right next to the rich. The Greeks were scandalized by this to have rich people, poor people, women next to men. My God, what are you doing? But this is the great uh, one in Christ in a particular way. Um, Only in Christ we can actually be because otherwise, the, you know, the differences will take over. But... Uh, and also <clears throat> the sensual aspect and all the vices that without Christ in, in that communal space of, space of a church, <clears throat> we cannot go exist. It, it will just, we will turn it to, to an arena uh, that will fight. And very often this is happening when, you know, people go to churches and they actually don't bring Christ with them. They just gossip, fight, argue. And uh, it is a common uh, thing. Um, it, this is yeah. what I observed. <laughs> oh, oh, no, we have that. I mean, there's a competition between the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. <laughs> I mean, you know, you see this things all the time. Uh, but, you know, in my church, it's funny. There are people who don't speak any English. There are people who only speak Spanish. I went to uh, Puerto Rico with one of my buddies who goes to the church. And his English isn't the best. But it didn't matter. We had completely different cultures, but we shared Christ and we got together fine, you know, completely different cultures. Christ really is the only thing that holds things together. Uh, you know, it's interesting because there was actually a famous Marxist who studied Mother Teresa. How do you get a bunch of people together with the goal of helping the poor? And she studied Mother Teresa and studied all our techniques and every time she tried to do it, there'd be infighting and, and anger, and it would explode, and egos. And she never considered the reason was because Mother Teresa worshipped Christ. <laughs> That's what she went to liturgy every day. She took the Eucharist. That's why she was able to hold things together, because everything comes one in Christ. That's not an intellectual abstract idea. That's the reality. We see it all the time. It's the it truth. is the glue. It is the glue in our community. And without this, we cannot have a community. That's as simple as that. There's no communication. It's going to be Babel, the Tower of Babel all over again. I mean, without that love, we cannot really communicate. And it's, uh, however, it feels really strange, makes no sense, but it's a mystery. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, I agree. I, I think that's happening uh, right now with postmodernity is everyone's speaking a different language, more or less. 
And that happens with art too. Uh, you know, if I were to draw a whale or write a story about a whale, Christians would think of Jonah. Well, your average person might think of the movie Free Willy. <laughs> a person might think of something else. Yeah. So how am I supposed to do artwork when everyone has different symbols? We're speaking a different language. That's, that's very, very difficult, you know, as a secular artist. I mean, how do you convey Christ to people who don't share your symbolic vocabulary. We are going to have a whole live conference uh, in the festival with some of the biggest uh, names in, uh, and it would be one of the questions. That's a great question. I can't wait to see what yeah, this Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's it, you know, there are challenging questions. And of course, this will just be the beginning of many different things that we'll, uh, we'll try to organize because there are many questions uh, that needs to be answered. And uh, and I think all questions must be approached with the right attitude and some <clears throat> elements of love for those that are involved. Otherwise, you will never have a proper answer that is satisfying. And I think uh, very often we just uh, do out of uh, intellectual curiosity, but not with the right type, with the right humility. Uh, and uh, that's quite uh, important. And uh, let's hope that uh, as we, we artists now, we took a little bit control of the Orthodox art scene. And let's see where exactly, exactly will, uh, will move the, the, you know, the, where the direction will take us. And uh, I hope uh, by, with the blessing of uh, many good people, we'll be able to, to find some answers. Now it is, um, tell me, you, I assume that you are not born to Christian Orthodox family. You probably convert later, later isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, from an early age, uh, I, I grew up nominally Catholic. I went to church once a year on Christmas. Some years we didn't go at all. I went to a Catholic school. I must say, I didn't see anything holy or sanctified about the priests. Uh, the ones I knew seemed like very nice people. Uh, but you know, when I looked at other religions, say Buddhists. Those people are different. Those people are living in the world differently. Um, you know, as Christians, I always ask myself, if someone followed me around and didn't know I was a Christian, would they know? Would they be able to tell I'm Christian throughout the day? Do I act differently or do I act just like a worldly person? And I, I deeply got into many religions. I deeply went into Buddhism. Shintoism, Hinduism. I loved Sufi. Uh, Christianity was the last place I'd look. Christianity, I thought, had no truth. Uh, it was very superficial. Um, it, it was just utterly ridiculous. Um, so years and years went through of me searching and searching and feeling there was something missing. And uh, I got, I decided I'm going to get a biography of people in the 20th century who follow a religion. And I got autobiography of a yogi. I got a book about a rabbi. I got a book about a Sufi. I got a book about a guy named Seraphim Rose, who was an Orthodox Christian. And he reminded me of myself a little bit. He got caught up in the 60s. He got caught up in that scene. He was open to Eastern religions and to Taoism. 
he studied traditionalism, Rene Gonan. He was an intellectual guy. So I read his biography and uh, and I was smitten by that. Um, uh, there was one scene in his biography where he's talking about uh, the scene in the gospel where the rich man of Lazarus and the rich man dies. He goes to Hades and he's, he begs, uh, you know, he begs that someone go to see his brothers and tell them uh, that this whole thing is real and you better take it seriously. And uh, he's told, well, if they don't believe the Old Testament, if they don't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe anyone showing up and appearing to them. And I heard that before, and I thought it was ridiculous. But for some reason, reading Seraphim Rose's life, it struck me that that was 100% true, that the Bible was God's truth. It just struck me in my heart. And I read the uh, Gospel of John and just utterly struck me. It wasn't my doing. Now, previously, I'd spent two years on my knees every day asking whoever's out there, the spirit of the universe, God, to give me belief if you're out there. Two years, every morning, every night, but no answer. Uh, but I kept it up. I kept it up. And after two years, I found that I was a believer in Christ and Christianity. And I went to Orthodox churches and I stood in the back for a year before I even talked to the priest because I was unsure. You know, and that was about 12 or 13. Well, actually, I guess it was about 15 years ago now. And I've been an Orthodox Christian. It was a bizarre road, but um, I believe he was pursuing me. Um, it, and also talking about beauty and art. One of the things I thought about Orthodoxy was how beautiful it was. And even the lives of the saints. Uh, St. Moses the Black, I read. And I was shocked how how beautiful his responses were uh, to people. So humble. Uh, there's a story about him in a monastery, and one of the monks gets caught with a girl. Oh my God! And so the monks want to get together and talk about this. But Saint Moses the Black shows up with a sack of flour, sack of grain on his back with a hole in it, and the grain's pouring out. And he says, "It's just like this. My sins are pouring out all the time." And who am I to judge anyone? And it was so humble and so beautiful, this life. And Sarah from Rose's life was beautiful. And ultimately, I do think it was the beauty of the liturgy that, um, that caused me to desire this form, this man, this God-man that lived such a beautiful life. Um, I, I believe Christ called to me. And, and, but I, I didn't give up. I kept searching. And it went through you know a lot of phases and a lot of different things. But eventually i made it <laughs> what uh, what your family uh do they do they know anything about your faith no they know very little i i tell them they think it's just very bizarre they think it's very odd i mean it goes against the american ethos here in america it's evangelicalism it's um even the catholic church here the the liturgies are about 45 minutes long in the catholic church now the very watered down, uh, the idea that you would fast and pray, go to an hour and a half liturgy, it sounds like a bizarre cult to most Americans. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, why would you do this? If I tell you I'm fasting to lose weight, that's okay. But if I tell you I'm fasting for the love of God, oof, that makes no sense. I must be mentally ill. 
these things, you know, Stanley Huarez, the American theologian, said that, you know, a lot of things us we Christians do are only intelligible in the context of our practices, worship, fasting, prayer. And if you're not in it, to an outsider, it will look very bizarre. I mean, listen, you walk into North X Church, you're kissing icons, you're kissing boards of paint. What is that? Relics, about? relics, you know? dead bones. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, how bizarre that could be for many people. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've told people a little bit, and they think it's very occult. Drinking very blood. What can you do when you tell people, uh, not only have I met God, I eat God, I smell God, I taste God. I, what can a person make of that? The, the biggest mistake uh, that the West did is when they tried to reason with uh, the Islamists back in Spain when they were the Jews, the Islamists and the Christians, they thought, the Catholics, they, they all thought they would figure a way to explain all these things and make really sense, yeah. put reason, where reason will, will, ex will, will make everything very clear. And what they end up is with the kind of gnosticism and a, and a kind of uh, uh, scientific cult uh, Christianity that eventually was the, I mean, stripped away all the mystery of it. Well, that that's why art is so important. And I've seen your paintings, which are very mystical. And uh, that, that's why I liked orthodoxy, because every religion I went into, I'd ask questions. And almost all of them had immediately answers. You know, Catholicism, you can go look up the answers, you know, and they're very precise and they're very mathematical. And I would ask a lot of questions in orthodoxy. And a lot of times I would get, I don't know. We don't know. There's different opinions on that. It's a mystery. I love that. Because as G.K. Chesterton said, God's mysteries are more satisfying than man's answers. And in other religions, I were getting answers from men. That's not what I want. I want God. And God doesn't fit inside my head. I can't have a concept of God. I have to be open. If it's God, it's not going to be an idea. I don't want an idea. I don't want a mathematical formula. I want God. And that's what the Orthodox Church gives. The only thing we have is a name. And that will be enough for us. <laughs> you know, it's just a name to call. And uh, thank God, uh, you know, and uh, we have the sense names. Names. Yeah. We know nothing about their state of their being. Uh, if they have an aura or they don't have or what kind of color it is and uh, <laughs> what kind of ray they belong. <laughs> so, oh, I know. I, all I, these I, things. I, you know, it's uh, we only have people that... Um, devoted themselves to that kind of holiness and we saw the gifts we tasted the the fruits and uh and it tasted good and I think <laughs> that's right no well that that taste i mean it's about art we tasted and it was good just like god created it was good no one reasoned me into religion and you're not going to reason anyone into anything if they want it, why do they want it? If they desire it, why would they desire it? Because it's beautiful. 
That's what it's about, beauty. As long as it's beauty and truth, as long as it's a reflection of truth. And of course, the story of Christ is the most beautiful story there is. It's God sacrificing himself and his own son for the love of the world. You will not find a more beautiful story than that in all of world literature, you know? So are you working on anything new or ongoing projects? To go yeah, back I, have to a, I have a couple things. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, I have a book on origin coming out. That's by uh, Pleroma Press. It's going to be on Amazon. Uh, Father John Bear, who wrote the newest edition, was nice enough to look it over. And um, it's on basic themes. Very simple, very clarified uh, I think it's important to know him because St. Maximus and the other fathers took what he did, perfected it, um, corrected it, uh, baptized it. Um, but uh, th so this book on origin I have coming out. Um, and and that, that's really the main thing. As a last question, I was wondering what advice you would give to somebody that uh, wants to follow the stimulating, though, sometimes dangerous path of the arts? Well, I, I would say to never give up, but be, be quiet and follow the music inside you. You know, an artist isn't someone who makes art. Um, you know, there are times when I didn't make art and yet it was always in my mind. If you're an artist, you don't have a choice. If you don't do it, you'll be burdened with guilt. This is a calling. You were called and you must answer. If you don't answer it, you'll be driven mad. You know, you can't say no to it. So I would say embrace it, say yes, say yes, and order it towards the glory of God. Jonathan, we appreciate you taking the time to tell us about yourself and your work. And we thank you very much for that. Thank you. It's a pleasure meeting you. To all of our Orthodox Arts Festival viewers from Jonathan McCormack and Ioannis Antoniadis, thank you for watching.